Good morning, friends. Uh, today we're going to start a, a series of messages from the book of James. And I guess if I gave the, um, the entire study a name, I would call it Faith with Boots On. But today's message, the subtitle would be Stand Strong in Hard Times. And it's from the first chapter of James, the first four verses. <clears throat> now, though it's the earliest of all the New Testament books, probably written about oh, 38 to 44 um, A.D., it kind of reads like a letter for the 21st century. Now, here's what we need to know about the book. James was evidently the half-brother of Jesus, meaning that he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary. We know that he wrote very early because the book he addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, meaning the very earliest Jewish believers who had been scattered because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8. Those early Christians were Jewish, scattered, poor, and struggling. In many ways, the little letter of James is the most practical book in the New Testament. It kind of reads like a sermon or maybe kind of like a pep talk from a, a football or basketball coach. When we read this epistle, we get a glimpse of Christianity in its earliest form. There's no theory here, just straight talk from Jesus' brother about what works and what doesn't work in the Christian life. Someone has counted over 50 commands in these five chapters. This isn't like Paul in Romans with his intricate theological arguments. This is cut to the chase, bottom line talk from a man who knew his readers needed encouragement to stand strong in hard times. And so James begins with a, an exhortation about how to respond when hard times come. And you know something? After 2,000 plus years, his words still ring true today. Let's start with the command, verse 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So here he begins by reminding us that sooner or later, and maybe sooner, we're going to face trials of various sorts. The word face has the idea of falling or stumbling over a problem. I mean, picture someone driving down the highway in a convertible, the top is down, the music blaring, he's having a blast. I mean, not a problem in the world, not a care or concern. And without warning, there's a sudden jolt, the car swerves to the right and comes to a halt. Now, what happened? The car hit a massive pothole and suddenly the happy journey is over. You know, life is like that for all of us from time to time. No matter who we are, where we live, trouble is just a phone call away. A doctor may say, I'm sorry, you've got cancer. Or the voice may inform you that your um, son or daughter has just been arrested. Or you may be fired without warning. Or someone you trusted may start spreading lies about you. Or maybe someone just decides they don't want to be married anymore. I mean, the list is endless because our trials are multicolored and variegated. That's the phrase many kinds has this idea behind it. How then should we respond to these hard times that suddenly come to us? But James offers what appears to be a strange piece of advice. He says, consider it pure joy, or in the King James, count it all joy. I don't know about you, but that sounds so odd that one wonders, James, are you serious? Count it all joy? Are you nuts? Do you have any idea what I've just been through? Well, it does sound rather idealistic, if not downright <clears throat> impossible. And I confess to being bothered by this, so I decided to check it out in the Greek. And there's no help there. The word joy means joy. Pretty simple. So I decided to check out some other translations. One version says, be very glad. Another one said, consider yourselves fortunate. And I didn't find that much help. And um, 
I saw the Phillips translation, and they translated when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Now, even as I put this message together, I had kind of a smile on my face, and I think it's the exclamation point at the end of that translation that that did it for me. It's not just welcome them as friends, that would be hard enough, but welcome them as friends, exclamation point, which to me sounds positively goofy. It's like I'm welcoming long-lost friends to my house. Now, as I have pondered uh, the matter and considered my own personal difficulties, uh, with this concept, the thought occurs that counting it all joy when trouble comes is not a natural response. If we want a natural response, we can talk about anger or complaining or getting even or running away. I mean, it's not natural to find joy in tough times, but that's the whole point. James is talking about a natural response. He's talking about a, he's not talking about a natural response. He's talking about a supernatural reaction made possible by the Holy Spirit, enables us to see and to respond from God's point of view. And I conclude then that counting it all joy is a conscious choice we make when hard times come. Now, truthfully, it's probably a choice we have to make again and again in our lives, and to do it, we'll have to take the long view of life to understand that what we see is not the final chapter of the story. And if we can make the choice to view life that way, then we can make the following statements about our struggles and our trials. One, this is sent from the Lord. And two, this is necessary for my spiritual growth. Now, that first statement sent by the Lord reflects a high view of God's sovereignty. Everything that happens to us is either caused by God or allowed by God. And if I truly believe that, then I can move to the second statement that it's necessary for my spiritual growth. Now, here's a hint. Don't trust your feelings. When those you love are in great pain or when you face senseless tragedy or when friends turn against you or when tight life kind of falls in on you, your feelings won't be your accurate guide. You probably won't feel joyful or grateful or full of trust. You're quite likely to be filled with a whole bag of negative emotions. So, friends, don't judge your circumstances by your feelings. Judge your circumstances by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. And when you do that, a powerful conclusion emerges. It's this. These great trials give me great hope that God means a great benefit to me. Seeing things God's way doesn't cancel your problems. It doesn't turn them into non-problems. It doesn't transform your evaluation of these problems or trials. You, You will view them differently because you believe that God intends through them to give you a great benefit that you could not come, that could not come any other way. Now, no doubt, our main problem comes because we misunderstand the word joy. Now, in contemporary parlance, the word is virtually a synonym for happiness. I mean, joy to many people speaks of a pepper alley or, uh, you know, a champagne party on New Year's Eve. I mean, to us, joy means the absence of all pain, but that's not what the Bible means. So let me give you a working definition here. Joy is deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that God is in control, even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. Joy grows best in the deep soil of the sovereignty of God. If you know that God is in control, you can be satisfied at a very deep level, even while you weep over what's happening around you and to you. Let's move on here. I'll give you the reason. It's in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, every word of this verse is crucial. The phrase, you know, refers not to head knowledge. You know, I grew up, they call it book learning. 
but it's heart knowledge, the kind gained by years of experience. And sometimes we learn from books, others we learn in the school of hard knocks. And God intends to put our faith to the test. The word testing refers to the process by which gold ore was purified. In order to separate the gold from the dross, the ore was placed in the furnace and heated until it melted. The dross rose to the surface and was skimmed off, leaving only pure gold. That's a picture of what God is up to in our fiery trials. Now, we all have to undergo some furnace time sooner or later, and some of us will spend an extended time in the furnace of affliction. But the result is the pure gold of Christ-like character. Job spoke of that experience when he, when he says in Job 23.10, He knows the way that I take when he has tested me. I will come out as gold. So you see, friends, until your faith is put to the test, it remains somewhat theoretical. You never know what you believe until hard times come. Then you find out for better or worse. When the phone rings with bad news, when a friend ends up in prison or your best friend betrays you or you lose a job or your parents suddenly pass on or when life comes apart at the seams, then you discover what you truly and actually believe in the depth of your soul. And until then, your faith is speculative because it's untested. You can talk about heaven all you want, but you'll discover whether or not you believe in it when you stand by the casket of someone you love. God uses our trials to produce perseverance. Now, the Greek word is sometimes translated as endurance or steadfastness or patience. In Revelation 14:12, the word describes the faith of those brave saints who would not take the mark of the beast. Now, this is battle-tested faith that stands up other withering fire from the enemy and doesn't cut and run. That's what perseverance looks like. You don't get it in the good times. You get it in the hard times. Let's move on. Verse 4. This is the promise. Perseverance must finish its race, its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this is a, a process involved in our trials that lead to a product. Perseverance requires desperate dependence and dogged determination to hold on to our faith, even when the world seems to disintegrate all around us. Perseverance says, I'm not going to give up no matter what happens or how bad life may be. I'm going to hang on because I promised and because I believe the Lord has something in store for me. That sort of gritty stubbornness produces genuine spiritual maturity. When trials have finished their work in us, we will not lack anything the Lord wants us to have. If we need faith, we're going to have it. If we need hope, we're going to have it. If we need love, we'll have it. If we need any of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it will be produced in us. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be left behind. The great danger is that we will try to short-circuit the process by running away from our problems. The message translation translates part of verse 4 this way, don't try to get out of anything prematurely. You know, that's pretty good advice. It's not always easy to follow. Now, we often see the full flowering of this process in the life of the older saints of God. Proverbs 20, verse 29 puts it this way, the glory of young men is their strength. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. And Proverbs 16:31 adds this insight, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained by living a godly life. Now, to be sure, there are many gray-haired fools, and there are many wise and godly young people, but Solomon means that if you have walked with the Lord, you will be filled with wisdom in your old age. And how do you get that wisdom? By not running away from the trials that come your way. 
Now, James would say amen to that. When trials come, and they come to all of us eventually, there's something we can't know and something we can know. We can't always know why things happen the way that they do. No matter how hard we try to figure things out, there will always be many mysteries in life. The greater the tragedy, the greater will be the mystery. And God doesn't explain himself to us. As we go through life, we can look back and see many blanks that we wish God would fill in for us. Most of the time, we will carry those unfilled blanks with us all the way to heaven. See, when the hard times come, we can know that God is at work in our trials for our benefit and for his glory. Romans 8.28 says, to say that that is to say nothing more than the words of that verse, Romans 8.28. <clears throat> for the children of God, all things do indeed work together for good. Sometimes we'll see it, often we'll simply have to take it by faith, but it's true whether we believe it or not. The Christ-following life is not an easy way, and any representation to the contrary is false. There's an abundant life to be had, and there is spiritual victory, and there is joy in the Lord and the filling of the Spirit. But those things don't come in spite of our trials. Most often they come through and with and alongside our trials. In various ways, we're going to all struggle every day as we make our earthly pilgrimage. In a fallen world, there can be no other way. And for the most part, we can't choose our trials, nor can we avoid most of them. But we can choose how we respond. That part is up to us. Joy or bitterness, forgiveness or anger, trust or unbelief, faith or fear, love or hatred, gentleness or stubbornness, mercy or revenge, peace or worry, hope or despair. You see, friends, our perspective makes all the difference. God does not intend to destroy us by the trials he allows to come our way. Those things that seem so painful now will one day be clearly seen as benefits to our spiritual growth. They are not meant to defeat us, but to be the means to a greater spiritual victory. Therefore, we should not complain when hard times come. We should rejoice. And we will rejoice if we believe what God has said. Every hard trial is another step on the stairway that leads from earth to heaven. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.